Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're heading back in time with some of our favorite Metro Connection stories about the region's bygone days, like the ferry line in Maryland that began 331 years ago. I think if you ask people back when I was growing up if they ever thought I'd be a ferry boat captain, they would have laughed at you, but it's really a spectacular job. And an old Virginia jail that supporters hope to turn into a museum. One of our chores is to find somebody that can actually recreate the old style nails because you don't go to Home Depot and you buy them kind of nails. Plus the ups and downs of DC's go-go scene and retail therapy with a historic twist. I mean, it's not a Cadillac. That's down the street at Garfinkel's. It wasn't a Chevrolet where you pack the kids and you need a motor solid transportation. That's F Street where Heck Company was. Each of these cars had personalities just as these stores did. But we're going to begin today's show in a place whose origins extend back in time, 138 years, and space, three city blocks. We have an engraved invitation in our collection inviting people to come watch the synagogue building move. I've got it right over here. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Wendy Terman is the archivist at the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington. So what does it say? So it says, the officers and directors of the Jewish Historical Society and the Addis Israel Congregation cordially invite you and your family to witness the moving of Washington's oldest synagogue from 6th to 3rd on G Street Northwest. Thursday, December 18th, 1969, 10.30 a.m. And that new 3rd and G location is where Wendy and I are standing now, in the sanctuary of the Addis Israel Synagogue. It was built at 6th and G in 1876, but in 1969 it was threatened by demolition. So the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington, which by the way formed in 1960 to chronicle the story of the local Jewish community, they arranged to have the building hoisted onto dollies and relocated. Because it was so heavy, the tractors actually broke a gas line, and so they had to stop the move, and the gas company had to come and turn off the gas, and then they had to burn off the excess gas. But they were very proud they didn't lose any bricks in the course of the three-hour move down the street. So a three-hour move for three blocks, that's about an average of an hour a block? Exactly. Not bad. Exactly. For a building. (laughs) After a ton of renovation and restoration, the synagogue was rededicated and opened to the public as the Lillian and Albert Small Jewish Museum. But get this, in a few years, the synagogue slash museum will be moving again. Here's the society's executive director, Laura Applebaum. So we're on the edge of a big new development downtown that will deck over the 395 center leg freeway, as they call it, between where our building is and Georgetown Law School. It creates three new city blocks. And so as part of the development, our building will be moved one block south. And adjacent to it, the society will build a brand new, much bigger museum. Right now, it's a small building. It's a historic site. It's the only Jewish building in the city on the National Register, and we have no gallery space. So we tell the story here of the early congregants and the early neighborhood, early Jewish roots. To tell a fuller, richer story of Jewish life in D.C., though, the society has always had to take its shows on the road. We've been at the National Building Museum. We've had an exhibit at White Flint Mall, Washington Hebrew, at each of the JCCs. But the new Lillian and Albert Small Jewish Museum will include galleries for permanent and traveling exhibitions, as well as classrooms, archives, offices, even a roof garden. And all of it will help the society paint a fuller picture of Washington's Jewish community, which, by the way, is thought to date back to 1795 with the arrival of a builder named Isaac Pollock. Other Jews followed. First, Ashkenazi Jews from Central and Eastern Europe and Russia, and then in the 1920s, Sephardic Jews, that is, Jews of Spanish, Portuguese, or North African descent. 
But as Laura Applebaum will tell you, this timeline was kind of late compared with other East Coast cities. This city is not a port city. A lot of other cities, New York, Boston, Philly, Charleston, Baltimore, that are all ports, they had an early Sephardic community. We didn't have an early Sephardic community. People went into other ports, other places, and then they kind of found their way here for all kinds of opportunities around the economy fueled by the government. Indeed, many Jews wound up working for the federal government, while others wound up working for themselves. 7th Street Northwest, for instance, used to be bustling with Jewish-owned shops and stores. And in the 1920s, you could find more than 300 Jewish grocers all around town. One of the things we're particularly interested in wanting to focus on is that larger story of Washington as the nation's capital, a place where local business owners, Jewish shopkeepers, interact with the federal government in unusual ways. And those unusual ways have led to some terrific stories, says archivist Wendy Terman, like the one about the party supplies shop owner who got a phone call requesting 750 miniature satin heart-shaped wedding cake boxes. And she said, okay, can I know who's going to pay the bill? And she was told, oh, the bride's father will take care of it. It's President Lyndon Johnson. And some of those satin boxes are now in the society's collection, along with loads of letters, flyers, photographs, business records, invitations, diaries, scrapbooks, family trees, immigration documents, even ceremonial and ritual objects from Jewish homes and synagogues. Where are you storing all of these things? <laughs> so we have some materials stored here. We have some materials stored off-site. And once you have your new facility, will you be able to bring everything in the same place? I would love to be able to do that. <laughs> Only time will tell whether her wish has come true. As of now, the earliest the new Lillian and Albert Small Jewish Museum will open is the year 2020. But in the meantime, the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington will continue its mission to explore, share, and preserve the distinctive Jewish heritage of Washington, D.C. as both the hometown of a community and the capital of a nation. The Society's exhibit, Through the Lens, Jeremy Goldberg's Washington, is now on display at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Northwest D.C. For more on this collection of photos of original and current sites of synagogues and other Jewish buildings, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you're curious as to what a 270-ton synagogue on wheels looks like, we have photos from that three-block move back in 1969 on our website, too. Just head to metroconnection.org. Our next stop on today's Back in Time show is Brentsville, Virginia, the historic seat of Prince William County. From 1822 to 1894, the old jail there housed the county's murderers, arsonists, and horse thieves. But the building's history and the stories of its prisoners were covered up over the years as the jail was repurposed as a school, a private home, and eventually a county office. Now, workers are restoring the jail to its original appearance. And as Jacob Fenston tells us, it may open next year as a museum, telling the story of crime and punishment in antebellum Virginia. Inside the old brick building, it's cool, dark, and dusty. 
The interior walls have all been torn out, exposing termite-eaten timbers. Yeah, let's go on this side for real quickly. I want to show you. Brendan Hannafin is showing me around. He's director of the Prince William County Preservation Office. This is actually a pretty cool view right here. We walk from the jailer's quarters into one of the old cells. You can see through to the second floor because we have the floors that have been taken out. And the, the ceiling joists for the second floor are burnt, charred timbers. This is evidence of an attempted escape more than 170 years ago, according to local volunteer historian Morgan Breeden, who's helping the county research the jail's history. It was a slave named Landon who was being held because he had tried uh, to run away. It was 1839, and he nearly burned his way to freedom. While he was in the, the cell, he asked uh, one of the jailers for a hot coal to light his pipe with which wasn't uncommon. But a few minutes later, the second floor was filling with smoke. The house was on fire. Landon had pushed the burning coal into a crack in the cell wall. He was actually uh, sentenced to be hanged. Brendan Hannafin says this jail's history is still relevant, and that's why the county is restoring the building. Crime and punishment in antebellum Virginia, or the South, or even the United States at that time, revolved around a lot of issues that we, we still deal with today. The issue of race, for example, still looms over the criminal justice system, as does the issue of mental illness. The fact that uh, insane folks were kept here, they were jailed. That's a modern topic. That's something to talk about now. It may not be the most glorious history, Hannafin says, but it is worth preserving. It has some dark moments. American history, all history has some dark moments, but you should talk about them. It's, it's the best way to really not do them again. The restoration work is slow going. It started four years ago. First, workers gutted the interior, tearing out layers of drywall and plaster installed during the decades after the jail shut down in 1894. Fritz Korzendorfer is the construction coordinator. The big part is is to be able to take everything down without ever, all of it collapsing down onto it. During the demolition, workers uncovered all sorts of little treasures, things that may have belonged to prisoners, a pair of leather shoes. Buttons, marbles, bullets. We found an old stove. A porcelain range from the early 1900s buried in what was probably an old cellar. Also buried deep under the floor, lots and lots of bones. There was all kinds of chicken bones in here. Possibly leftovers from construction workers almost 200 years ago. You know, they might have come in, sat on the wall, ate lunch, and then they just buried it. So carpenters in the early 19th century liked chicken for lunch. What do we know about the men and women who spent time behind bars here? But it starts off, you know, again, I again am inquiring about you and my own situation in jail. Uh, I, I have a real hard... This, isn't, this script is particularly bad. This is an old letter historian Morgan Breeden found for sale on eBay. Every square inch is covered with a desperate scrawl. Is that my, my mention to you? I can't read it either. Yeah, but 1848, December 15th, 1848, and written from the Brentsville Jail. You, you can clearly see that it says Brentsville here. My dear mother. My dear mother. And, and you don't know um, why he was in jail? or We do not know why he was in jail. Uh, we don't have any other records uh, of him being in jail. But they do have a list, actually, a thick three-ring binder filled with the names and crimes of the men and women who did time here. They were there for highway robbery, house burning, intent to kill, attempted murder, break and enter. Horse stealing? Horse stealing, yeah. The list covers some 70 years of crime in Prince William County, and it goes on and on. Poisoning, debt, 
contempt. But the list isn't complete. During the Civil War, the Brentsville Jail and adjoining courthouse were occupied alternately by Confederate and Union troops. Many of the court records were lost. Now, Breeden and other local historians are piecing together this history. Some of it will go into the displays in the renovated jail, which may open to the public as soon as next year. I'm Jacob Fenston. Want to check out the rehab work at the Brentsville Jail for yourself? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break now, but when we get back, an insider's take on Gogo and the unofficial king of the genre, Chuck Brown. My whole life has been music. That's my thing. Uh, and, and I think I've been lucky. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we've gone through the archives and pulled some of our favorite stories about the D.C. region's colorful past for a show we're calling Back in Time. In just a bit, we'll go back in time to the late 1600s and hop aboard a Maryland ferry that first began operating in 1683. And we'll also hop back and look at D.C.'s heady history of beer. Get it? Hop back hops. Anyway, first we'll engage in a little bit of retail therapy. Retail therapy that comes to us by way of an institution that lasted more than 125 years around these parts. And while we officially bid it farewell in 1995, if you head to the heart of downtown Washington... All right, we're walking east on F Street Northwest. To 11th and F. Reaching 11th. You'll still see signs of it. And on the corner of the building where H&M is currently located... And I mean literal signs. You can see the words Woodward and Lothrop. When Woodward and Lothrop, or Woody's as it later came to be known, officially opened its doors in 1886, it was considered to be Washington's very first department store. Obviously that's not here anymore. We're about to talk about when it was here. And an excellent person to talk with about that very subject... I'm Michael. I'm Rebecca. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Is this guy. My name's Michael Lasicki. I'm a member of the Baltimore Symphony, but I've also had this crazy passion of loving the history of department stores. And I've written six books on department stores, the last one being Woodward and Lothrop, a store worthy of the nation's capital. Now, you didn't make up that quote, a store worthy of the nation's capital, did you? No. Actually, a lot of publishers, they want to, you write a book, they want a subtitle. And you go up to the documents, and in the 1940s, they started using that in some context. And it's like, that is perfect. I can't come up with a better slogan than that. All right, so I want to talk about the way you open the book. In the very preface of the book, you are comparing the different department stores that Washington, D.C. once had to different divisions of General Motors cars. And you say that Woodward and Lothrop was the Buick of Washington. Can you talk about why you made that particular comparison? A Buick is a car that you would aspire to drive. 
And Woodward and Lothrop was a place where you aspired to shop at, whether you were buying something small or something big. I mean, it's not a Cadillac. It wasn't meant to be. That's down the street at Garfinkel's. It wasn't a Chevrolet where you pack the kids and you need a motor of solid transportation. That's that way towards F Street where Heck Company was. And it's also indicative of the time. Each of these cars had personalities and individuality, just as these stores did. Let's go back to the very beginning of Woodward and Lothrop, a.k.a. Woody's. Walter Woodward and Alvin Lothrop, they referred to the first seven years of their time in D.C. as the impossible years. Why was that? Well, it's a struggle getting a new concept going. One price stores. That was unheard of. Haggling was the way to go. And that's what they didn't like up in Boston. And, yeah, it's hard starting up a business and developing a new type of business. But they did it. It wasn't without hard work, but they did it. All right, moving up a few years, moving forward in time. How did the store do during the Great Depression? This was a time you needed entertainment. These stores were free entertainment, whether it was looking in the windows and getting you in there. And a lot of places developed their loyalty during the um, Depression. Places like Garfinkel's didn't have to worry about it so much because their clientele was kind of secured being in the upper crust. Um, Hex and Landsbergs, that's a store people don't want to remember. I mean, they, they kind of took care of that you know, the real, the people that needed some of the help. The Washington didn't suffer as much of the Depression as other cities did. And that probably also was some of the thing that helped Woody's. This is where you went for entertainment. In August of 1945, Woody's began to expand out into the suburbs. What prompted that expansion and where'd they go first? Well, you know, you had to follow your customer. You had to follow your customer and once the war ended... People wanted a car, people wanted a house, people were moving away. Cities were getting older, even stores were getting harder to maintain. And Woody's was not the first person to leave. Uh, Garfinkel's actually opened a small branch up at Spring Valley, but Hex up at Silver Spring was a big branch that really was a huge component here with suburban outreach. Woody's went to Chevy Chase. That Chevy Chase store played such a huge role in the store's development. Eventually, Woody's began to downsize in a big way. Yeah. You know, you're looking at ways to cut costs. And the, one of the easiest ways, besides, well, you got, you got the upkeep of the building, so you start cutting back on employees. And as you had the competition, oh, God, when Bloomingdale's came to town, I mean, Woody's kind of lost some of its direction. And then change of ownership and merchandise, well, mishaps, let's say, that certainly didn't help with the longevity. Before we go on talking about the eventual fate of Woody's, I want to stop in the 1960s. You have a chapter in your book called The Disturbance, and it's a quote from someone referring to the April 1968 riots. What was the atmosphere like at Woody's leading up to the riots? What I find interesting with Washington is I felt, I feel, and I will say this, that integration came a little late compared to many of the other cities. Go up to Baltimore, up the road. And Woody's was not a very open store. You had separate entrances here. You had separate restrooms. You had separate drinking fountains. That, unfortunately, was the practice. All these stores basically did it. The one store that really catered was a lower-end store called Morton's. Morton's left in 1993. That store was an open store. And it was Landsberg's that didn't want to refer to it as the riots. It was the disturbance. And, you know, business here dropped uh, about 50% within a few years. I mean, this was considered dangerous. Now, you write in your book that the 1980s, that decade, was arguably the most eventful decade in Woody's history. How so? I mean, I know that by 1985, the store was no longer a locally owned D.C. institution, but how was it such an eventful time? The 1980s were all about mergers, takeovers, 
and some of those takeovers were hostile takeovers. And Woody's was susceptible. The businesses were not bringing in the cash, but the real estate was worth something. And, you know, you had a, you had a corporate raider come in in 1983, and that just kind of shook the board up. You had families leaving the department store business. I mean, you didn't have that next generation fostering, and they needed to survive. So they bring other people to invest, I think, to keep the store going. And, you know, by the time 1986, 100th anniversary of Woodward and Lothrop, and the big celebration here, Michael Graves was part of the redesigning of it, Marion Barry is there giving the key to the store, and people having this galas here. And right over the hump after that store, it was just... Like, okay, where are we? Where are we as a business? How are we going to survive? The writing was on the wall. You had Nordstrom coming into town. That puts the fear of God in places like this. And Woody's just tried to keep above water as long as it could. So it's been some some years now since Woodward and Lothrop was in business, although it still says it on the outside of the building. What do you hope people remember the store as? Because by the end, you know, times were not exactly as shiny and bright as they were at the beginning. How would you hope that Woody's would be remembered by Washington? You know, if Woody's was not important, Woodward and Lothrop, not important, we would not have a building that still says Woodward and Lothrop at the corner here at 11th and F. You would not see it over the canopy, and you wouldn't have that WL flag above it. They're not going to do that if it doesn't mean something. It's still an iconic building. Um, I mean, it's an institution. It's an institution. I, when I started writing these books, I really didn't think anybody still cared And what's really touching and wonderful is that they do. And that means people still care about their identity. This is part of their lives. And the fact that this building is again alive is the best that we can hope for. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Michael Lasicki is the author of Woodward and Lothrop, a store worthy of the nation's capital, now out from the History Press. To see photos of Woody's back in the day, including a shot of the famous Williamsburg Christmas windows from 1966, visit our website, metroconnection.org. I found the love that my heart has been longing for. Another key part of D.C.'s history is its music scene. We've been known for several genres of music, including bluegrass, punk, and, as we'll hear in our next story, go-go. Donald Tillery has been part of the go-go scene for decades as the trumpeter for Chuck Brown's band. Chris Klimek brings us his story. This is We the People. It's the title track from the Soul Searcher's debut album from 1972. That's Chuck Brown, the future godfather of go-go, singing lead. Let's meet the guy playing that trumpet. My name is uh, Donald Tillery. I'm a musician here in in, uh, Washington, D.C. I played with um, the original Soul Searchers, Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers Band. I've been playing, oh, over 20, 30 years. A lot longer than that, right? It's were, been uh, longer than that, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I'm cheating, you know, age, you know. Yeah, it's been longer than that. It's been longer than that. In the 60s, Tillery had his own group, the Epsilons. 
Chuck Brown was already a figure of legend, a guy who'd served eight years in prison for killing a man before he founded the Soul Searchers in 1966. I've heard about the Soul Searchers, you know, and I knew about Chuck and, you know, all the musicians in the city knew because they were at the top group around playing, gigging, you know, I mean, but every time you turn around, you heard him on the radio and mm. all this. When Brown turned up at one of the Epsilon's regular Friday night gigs, he liked what he heard. Brown invited Tillery to rehearse with the Soul Searchers, and soon he was playing with the group four or five nights a week. Every night, some weeks. But Tillery was still getting up at seven in the morning for his day job. As a counselor in a group home for abused children, he had to be at work at 8 a.m., and some nights he wasn't getting home until four. So I didn't have that much time to sleep. I actually wind up coming from a gig at the squad room, and I, I fell asleep at the wheel. I had an accident right around the reservoir, around the, the yeah, yeah, how it, yeah. mm-hmm. and I fell asleep in the car. I had a firebird, and uh, I slammed into uh, the pole. The car was totaled, but Tillery escaped the wreck with only bruises. He finally quit his day job to go full-time with the Soul Searchers in 1974. By the time of their third album in 1978, the Soul Searchers had become Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. Title song from Bustin' Loose was their biggest hit. They were invited to Los Angeles to play on the TV show Soul Train in 1979, and their frontman was persuaded, as Tillery puts it, to position himself as a solo artist. The Soul Searchers came home to D.C. and played gigs without him for a while, but it's hard to keep a band together. There were legal problems, there were drug problems, the drummer left to play for Miles Davis. Tillery finally quit the group in 1986. Freelance as a horn player, but by the end of the 80s, he was back in a 9-to-5 as an animal care technician with the National Institutes of Health. While he was taking dead rats out of cages, the song Ashley's Roach Clip from the Soul Searcher's second album, Salt of the Earth, was becoming one of the most off-sampled tracks in pop music. Tillery played trumpet and percussion on the tune, but he wasn't earning royalties. Several years passed before he started playing in a regular Wednesday night jam session at a nightclub called Felix on 18th Street in Adams Morgan. The regulars finally coalesced into the Truth Groove Band. The club's owner promoted them to regular Friday and Saturday night slots. Around 2000, Truth Groove signed with Elan Artists, a booking agency that got them started playing weddings and corporate events. Tillery was delighted. These kinds of gigs pay better than the clubs, he says, and the variety of music he gets to play is more diverse. That's the best part of, to me, the best part of uh, the wedding circuit. You get to, to mingle with other people, you know, and you get to play stuff that you want to play. And, you know, I'm a jazz. I like jazz. Yeah. I love jazz. So we, we play the jazz, and we'll start getting into the funk stuff, and we wearing nice yeah. suits and uniforms. Tillery says business is down in the years since the recession hit. He also thinks marriage itself is less popular than it used to be. Truth Group plays 10 or 15 weddings a year now, always between April and November, out of maybe your 20 or 30 performances overall. I look at it as just, I'm just a working musician now. In this business, you never know. You know, you could be down one time and up the other. As long as I'm working, yeah. I'm cool. I'm Chris Klemek. If 
you have a favorite memory of the DC go-go scene, we would love to hear it. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. DC now and head out to Maryland's eastern shore to the town of Oxford. That's where you'll find a ferry service that was established way back in 1683. At the time, the ferry was designed to move horses and men between Oxford and Bellevue across the Tread Avon River. Tara Boyle climbed aboard to meet the ferry's owners and sent us this audio postcard. Engines on. Hi, I'm Judy Bixler. I'm president and owner of the Oxford Bellevue Ferry. I'm Captain Tom Bixler, one of the also the owners of the Oxford Ferry. We started originally in 1683 when the county called upon Richard Royston uh, to provide a ferry service for this area. That was back in 1683, before America came about. So we've been around for a long time. This will actually be 331 years for the back for the Oxford Bellevue Ferry. What it was was a barge that they used to scull, which is basically rowing, and or pulled across by rope. Unfortunately, in those days, it was people that were uh, um, probably slaves at that point. The area was utilized, this ferry was utilized because it was a home port for the eastern shore of the United States, and the tobacco industry was shipping lots of tobacco and farm products at that point. The ferry has been owned by a number of different people over the years, but there were a number of women, actually, who owned the ferry. And one of the famous women was Judith Bennett, and she actually outlived three husbands running the ferry. So I often tease my husband, Tom, that he better be careful, (laughs) since I'm Judy and she was Judy. (laughs) He better beware. Base one foot, chance of rain through the night. The marine forecast for Chesapeake Bay from Pools Island to San We're standing on the bridge of the ferry. It doesn't get any prettier. The sun's shining, 75 degrees. We overlook the uh, harbor of Oxford and, you know, the Tredavon River. And then uh, we get to enjoy all the wildlife and all the folks that come to visit us. So what could be better? We get lots of eagles, lots of osprey. Um, We've had numerous instances where there was actually uh, dolphins, porpoises, swimming in the river. Uh, One day Judy actually had uh, about 75 of them surrounding her, which was an odd experience, you know, way up the river like this inside the bay. But um, there is always lots of ducks and geese and, you know, many, many things roaming around. We've actually had deer swimming across the river, so there's no lack of wildlife. In order to remove our gate, we use a, bit, a large nail that holds the gate in place, and then we, it's counterbalanced, so it doesn't, it's, it's quite tall. It's almost 25 feet long, but it's not that heavy because it's counterbalanced, so I can move the gate without too much trouble. Unless the wind is really strong, then sometimes I really have to put some effort into it. Tom was involved in working on a ferry when he was in college. It was his summer job, and he said that someday when we retired, this is what he'd like to do, own a ferry. And I think if you ask people back when I was growing up if they ever thought I'd be a ferry boat captain, they would have laughed at you. But it's really a spectacular job. We meet people from all over the world. um, And we actually came here, moved to this area in order to own the ferry. 
We are the oldest privately held ferry in the United States. Um, there is one other ferry, a, a lovely little operation up in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, which precedes us by about 13 years, but um, they've had the great luxury of being subsidized by the state of Connecticut. We've had to make this thing work with, you know, just us. The ferry is very stable. Um, and it, it, people don't understand that actually it gets more stable the more weight it has aboard it. They get out here when the waves are running and they're saying, oh, is it going to be bad? Am I going to get seasick? The ferry is really runs along very smoothly. You don't feel the motion. It's, it's a wonderful vessel and you feel very secure aboard it, but it is a responsibility. So we're always on guard, paying attention. And then we are, we're dancing with other sailboats. We're running with the watermen. It's kind of like an orchestra out here. We go in circles around each other and it's, it's a neat experience. It really is something very special. That was Judy and Tom Bixler speaking with Metro Connections' Tara Boyle. Up next, raising a glass to D.C.'s long history of brewing beer. At the very peak, which is just a couple years after the Civil War, we had about two dozen breweries here. That story and more coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're bringing you some of our favorite Metro Connection stories about D.C.'s days of yore. We're calling today's show Back in Time, and so far we've followed a moving synagogue in the 1960s, visited a jail from the 1820s, and in just a bit we'll go back to the 1950s and check out a spot in Silver Spring where striking out is a good thing, if a rare one. But first, we're going to stick around D.C. and revisit a time of ale and amber, barley and barrels, casks and kegs. Local historian Garrett Peck is the author of Capital Beer, A Heady History of Brewing in Washington, D.C. A few months back, I met up with Peck at quite the heady historic location in southeast D.C. We're between the Nationals Ballpark and the D.C. Water Pumping Station, and it's a big parking lot. And this was the site of the Washington Brewery. This was on the coastline when it first opened up, and then gradually the, all the, the land south of here, essentially about a block further south, has all been infill. But when the brewery first opened up in 1805, it was right on the water itself. It had a wharf and, and, and everything. An English doctor named Cornelius Cunningham opened the place, and it continued brewing beer all the way until 1836. But lest you think that was the end of the Washington Brewery, now, the Washington Brewery, uh, you have a little section in your book called One Brewery, Seven Locations. Yeah. It's had like seven different homes. Yeah. The Washington Brewery was this quintessential name. Cunningham founded the very first one, and the very last Washington Brewery was in the 1990s. There was a very short-lived contract brewer that had picked up the name. But other than Christian Heyrich, who was our best-known brewer in D.C., it's certainly the longest-lasting brewing name. But they were different companies, basically, and they were all a bunch of different locations. It was such a great name that one brewery would shut down, there'd be a couple years gap, and then suddenly someone else would rename their brewery as the Washington Brewery because the name had credibility. You write in your book the first brewery in the district is actually not in the district. It's in Alexandria. Can you tell us about it a little bit? Sure, yeah. The very first brewer was named Andrew Wales, and he started brewing in 1770 in Alexandria. And, of course, Alexandria then gets incorporated into the District of Columbia in 1791, which makes Wales then the first brewer in the District of Columbia. Not the first brewer in the city of Washington, but rather in the greater District of Columbia. Moving forward in time, we've got the Civil War. How did the Civil War affect brewing here in Washington? 
The Civil War was really a boom time for brewing in Washington. You know, there's just now this huge garrison in Washington. So all these little brewers all decide they're going to open up shops. So the city practically exploded with breweries during the Civil War. The Civil War then, I think, becomes this fundamental moment in American drinking history because before the war, Americans largely, especially American men, were drinking whiskey. But after the war, now they're drinking lager beer. So what then ushered in what you call in your book the Gilded Age of beer in Washington? The Gilded Age started really in the 1870s. And, and by the way, you can thank brewers for the invention of air conditioning and ice-making machinery. And that came about largely because of Robert Portner, who was the big brewer in Alexandria. And he was quite an innovator. Uh, once you had this, these, this machinery invented, though, you could start to brew lager year-round and not just in the wintertime. But what that meant, though, is that you had to have the capital to be able to afford all this machinery. So that very quickly squeezed out all the family brewers. So, you know, this Gilded Age industrial beer emergence. So by the 1890s, there are six big breweries in the, in the D.C. area. Uh, in Arlington, Virginia, back then it was Alexandria County. Uh, it was the Consumers Brewing Company, which became the Arlington Brewing Company. In Alexandria, you had the Tivoli Brewery, which was Robert Portner's brewery. Uh, in Foggy Bottom, you had the Christian Hyrick Brewing Company and Abner Drury Brewing Company. And then on Capitol Hill, you had the Washington Brewery. There's that name again. <laughs> and then the National Capitol Brewery, each able to brew at least 100,000 barrels of beer per year. And Christian Heyrich, of course, was the largest of all the brewers. He had half the capacity in the city alone. His brewery could brew 500,000 barrels a year. So the other breweries kind of ganged up against him and were trying to force him to raise the price of beer because they were all being squeezed out by his capacity in the market. This was, by the way, called the Beer War of 1904. And it lasted for a couple more years. I think this finally just petered out. You know, They were faced up against a much larger nemesis by that point, which was the temperance movement, which was starting to really squeeze the saloons and squeeze the brewers. Yeah, you write in your book, and I'm going to quote you here, nothing so threatened American brewers as the temperance movement. So can you give examples of how local brewers were so threatened by what was going on? Well, first off, their main outlet for selling beer were beer gardens and saloons. And of course, on an annual basis, when the beer gardener saloon would renew its license, they would have to go before the board. And of course, there'd be a member of the anti-saloon league there to challenge them. And yeah, most of the breweries uh, were simply to shut down entirely. I mean, only the two of them actually emerged from Prohibition, Christian Heyrich and the Abner Drury Brewing Company. And Abner Drury closed within a couple of years. They just couldn't make it financially. Christian Heyrich managed to stay open all the way until 1956. Uh, Heyrich himself had died in 1945, just before his 103rd birthday, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> and his family continued on brewing for another decade or so. And uh, the brewing market was really petering out then, the local brewing market. Just the national beer market, you know, Budweiser and Paps and Schlitz had really taken over the national beer market. And the little guys then, Heyrich is now a little guy, just couldn't compete against the national breweries now. So again, here we are uh, right by the National Stadium at a parking lot, basically, which once was the site of a brewery. What are some other sites around town that people might be surprised when they visit? Wow, there used to be a brewery here. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Tivoli Brewery, which was Robert Portner's brewery, that is the site now of the Trader Joe's on Washington Street <laughs> in Alexandria. And that is, by the way, surrounding it are three extant buildings from the brewery, two different bottling plants and an ice factory. Uh, they've been repurposed for other needs, including one as a condo now. Other places that are kind of surprising, uh, if you go to Capitol Hill, Stuart Hobson School, that was the Washington Brewery in the 1890s, all the way up until Prohibition. Also, the Safeway on 14th Street Southeast, that was the National Capitol Brewing site. 
So let's talk about beer's return to Washington. Things kind of went away as soon as the Heyrich stopped brewing. So when did things kick back up again? That brewery closed in January 1956, and then we went 55 years until another brewery opened up. Um, we did get brew pubs, by the way, in 1992. David and Fawn Stork opened up Capital City, and his original site is still open. That's the one on New York Avenue at the Greyhound Terminal building, you know? But it wasn't all the way until 2011 that Port City opened up, followed shortly by D.C. Brow, and then you get Three Stars and Chocolate City and so on. We've had this wonderful flurry of production breweries and brew pubs, so essentially just in three years' time. It's been a wonderful avalanche (laughs) or cascade of beer, and it's been also really cool to see how much Washingtonians have really embraced local beer now. And for the book, Capital Beer, I literally had to draw the boundaries at the original 100 square miles of the District of Columbia just because there are so many breweries now outside of the city, especially out in the suburbs. And this is largely because of, of real estate. It's cheaper in the suburbs, right? So we are not starved for choices anymore. It's a, it's, it's a good problem to have, you know? Garrett Peck is the author of Capital Beer, A Heady History of Brewing in Washington, D.C. He'll be speaking about the extensive history of brewing on Capitol Hill at D.C. Public Library's Southeast Branch on July 17th. For more information and to see a timeline of the many, many, many breweries involved in D.C.'s Sudsy past, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So you know what goes really well with beer? Bowling. And lo and behold, it just so happens, our next story takes us to a bowling alley. But not just any bowling alley. The White Oak Duckpin Lanes first hit the scene in 1959. It's one of the last places in our region where you can try your hand at duckpin bowling. Ralph Curry purchased the place in Silver Spring in 1979, and he shared his story with Metro Connections' Lauren Ober. Most people do view this as a kid's game. I guess because of the name, duck pens, and they see so many little kids bowling a game. But all you have to do is come in here and talk to some of these adults who've been bowling a game for 40 years, and they'll tell you otherwise. It said it was started in Baltimore by two baseball players who played for the Orioles, the old Orioles, and basically they bowled the other game, 10 pins, and they took some 10 pins and whittled them down and made them smaller. Somehow they got a smaller ball. And the first time they hit them, they kind of flew. So remind you of a pack of ducks flying. And that's where the name come from. Duck pin bowling, to me, is a very hard game. Basically, you grip the ball like you would a softball. As far as measurements, the pins are smaller, but they're on the same lanes that the big pins are on, 10 pins. You know, they're set the same distance apart, and pretty much, you know, scores are a little lower. And you do get to roll the ball three times. The strategy, I think, more than 10 pins is you have to make your spares. You know, and that's what makes this game a little harder. Most people in duck pins, they throw a little curve to the ball or a straight ball. You have to hit the pocket that's between the 1-3 pin and the 1-2 pin. That's where you aim for. But I just think even though the game's hard, it's so exciting when you get strikes because you don't get as many strikes in this game as you do with 10 pence, a big ball. Stay up, stay up. Beautiful. Basically, a lot of the equipment here is original equipment. The pin setters are original. It'll take you back into nostalgia. You do have to keep score yourself. We're not automated, so you have to use a pencil and cheat, score sheets. And we do have a lot of people that love that. 
So it works out nice. If you come in here on a weekend, you're going to find the whole gamut of people. I mean, we have people in their 90s bowling, the little kids three years old bowling, you know, and they just love it. I started at the age of 13 in a bowling center in Hagerstown, Maryland, as a pin boy. Our job was to be down there in the pits, roll the balls back as they rolled them, and then set up 10 pins for each bowler before the automatic pin setters, setting them up by hand. And that's where my love came from for the game. It was a back-breaking job because there was a lot of bending to it, you know. And uh, basically, once you got good enough, you set two lanes. When the pin setter first came out, we were actually a little quicker. So we liked that part of it. <laughs> 56, 57, somewhere in that period, uh, I noticed that there would be a need for mechanics to work on the pin setter. So I asked the owner, and he said, sure. What they would do, they would send you out on the road to do installations, installing the machines. And that's where you got most of your experience. I had no really mechanical experience. My father was very good with his hands. I fixed my bicycle chain. That was it. <laughs> and then I became a manager of a bowling center in Winchester, Virginia. And then I also, uh, after about three years there, I bought in as partnership. Myself and another gentleman owned that one for seven years. And then we sold that center and bought this center. It was one of the busiest ones on the East Coast. Well, this place right now has three more years left on the lease. So in 2017, I'll have to look at the lease, you know, because rents keep going up. So that'll be a big uh, decision maker at that point, whether this center stays open. I hope it does. Whether I'm here or not, I would like to see this center stay here so people have something to do in this area. Over the years, uh, we've just tried to keep it a family place, you know. Like any other business, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy. But I think we do a very good job here. It's been here so long, and it's just so established. I mean, we have people now that come back here. Kids who win youth league here are now bringing their kids back here to bowl. And, you know, we have the bumpers now. The bumpers really help. They would probably help you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have that. <laughs> you, can, you can get that out, right? That was Ralph Curry, owner of the White Oak Duck Pin Lanes, talking with Metro Connections' Lauren Ober. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Kentlands in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and the Glen Carlin neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. My name is Neil Harris. I'm 58 years old, and I live in the Kentlands, which is a new urbanist community in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Well, Kentlands was a planned community that actually worked according to plan, which is fairly rare. Uh, People come from all over to see the Kentlands and to try to understand why it works. The Kentlands is on the west side of Gaithersburg, just off of Highway 270. Uh, If you get off uh, 270 at 370 and then come up Great Seneca Highway, we're the large community on the left of of Great Seneca. I live on Main Street in the Kentlands. which is a street uh, bounded by LiveWorks homes, which are much like you see in, the, in, in a big city like Washington, D.C., uh, rows of storefronts with uh, residences and, and office spaces up above. The community is very walkable. It's, it's really built to be like a small town in the suburbs where it's self-contained. There's a shopping district. There are 
residential areas and it's very easy to get from one point to another. And as you walk down the street, you typically will see people that you know and say hello and maybe go have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or, or whatever. It's really a very, very strong sense of community compared to other places in the suburbs that I've lived over the years. My name is Steve Erickson. I'm 58 years old, and I live in the Glen Carlin neighborhood. The Glen Carlin neighborhood is located in Arlington. It is bounded on the north by Arlington Boulevard, on the west by Carlin Springs Road, on the east by Glen Carlin Park, and on the south by Virginia Medical Center. The land around here was surveyed by George Washington, and in the local library here we have some of his surveyor marks on a tree to mark his original um, land. In the late 1800s, a fellow named Carlin uh, moved here and built a resort in uh, an area that is now Glen Carlin Park. And his resort was available uh, to the folks from Washington, D.C. who would come out by train. The oldest uh, standing structure in Arlington is the John Ball House, and you can see that. Uh, you can take tours of it. Down the street from that is the original town hall that was built in the late 1800s. It still serves as a town hall for the community. Glen Carlin is really an ideal place to live because it's a combination of a very modern neighborhood that has access to lots of shopping and lots of uh, entertainment. It's also a very old neighborhood with lots of history, lots of folks that have lived here a long time. So I think it's a good combination between the two. We heard from Neil Harris in Pentlands and Steve Erickson in Glen Carlin. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Lauren Ober, and Tara Boyle, along with reporter Chris Klimek. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Our editorial assistant is Lauren Landau. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for information on its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection, or you can subscribe to our podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we bring you a show we're calling Turning Points. We'll meet high school graduates taking their next step in life. We'll meet two guys who left the corporate world behind to open their own beer garden. And we'll hear about efforts to rescue a historically significant mural before its building turns into condominiums. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.